Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Gene Twenge. Jean is a psychologist, author, and professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She's best known for her research on generational differences. Her book, Generation Me, dealt with millennials. Her book, iGen, which is how I first encountered her, deals with Gen Z. And now she's back with a massive new book called Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers, and silence, and what they mean for America's future. In this episode, we talk about all the differences between the various generations. Differences in happiness, suicide rates, drinking behavior, personality traits like narcissism, attitudes towards love and marriage, and more. And we talk about the technological and cultural trends that caused these generational changes. Jean's new book was one of the most delightful reads I've had in a while, and I really recommend it not just as a way of learning about generational differences, but also as a way of learning about the past hundred years of American history. So without further ado, Jean Twenge. Okay, Jean Twenge, thanks so much for coming on my show. You're welcome. So um, I think I first encountered you because of your book, iGen. And I distinctly remember that I was in college at the time. Did that book come out in 2017? 2017, yeah. So I got it soon after it came out. I heard about it maybe through a podcast or an article and immediately purchased it. And I I would have been probably a sophomore in college. And I distinctly remember vividly reading the book on the subway in New York where I was going to college and just being so blown away and astounded and, and feeling very seen in the sense that I, I had not seen a really accurate assessment of what was going on in my generation backed, backed up by data until that point. And you were pointing out all of these trends, which we will get to about how Gen Z and I was, you know, I'm an older Gen Z. I was born in 96. Gen Z were spending less time with friends less time drinking, less time getting into trouble in a way, in good ways, but also less time with friends in general and all of, and, and much more time online and having worse mental health consequences and all, all these trends we will get into in detail. But, you know, it seemed, uh, it, it just, it was, it, it really struck me. And I, there was a two or three week period where I was telling pretty much every one of my friends, like, you got to read this book by Gene Twangy. And not that many people were takers for whatever reason, but like I was really proselytizing your book in a very strong way. And then a few years passed and I didn't think about it so much. And now you have this new book called Generations, which deals not only with Gen Z, but with millennials, Gen X, um, baby boomers, the silent generation. So all the generations from me to my grandparents who are, who are the silent generation and goes in a really deep and data rich exploration of what is different between the generations. People talk all the time, oh, the younger generation, this, the older generation, that seldom do they have a lot of data to back up these generalizations. So uh, before we get into the specifics, how did you become interested in this issue and 
what was your personal path into this? You know, it started also when when I was in college, I was a college senior working on my honors thesis and I was really interested in gender and gender roles. And so I was using this questionnaire that looks at kind of gendered personality traits, kind of an old fashioned idea, but things like assertiveness and leadership was on the scale, you know, associated with men. Now, I don't think we would, you know, necessarily put it in that category. So this is the early nineties and the fellow students of mine who are filling out this questionnaire, especially the women, were scoring much higher on that questionnaire than the 1970s test manual said they should. And that made me realize, you know, there might be a generational difference here, but I had one sample, so it didn't mean a whole lot. Next year at the University of Michigan, where I went to grad school, same result. And then realized, you know, if there really is a generational difference, I should be able to see this with people who have used this questionnaire all the way from the early 70s to now. So I did that and found all the articles at the library. And sure enough, that's how it looked. It was this straight march upward in those scores. And I realized it really made perfect sense, considering Considering the way, especially the roles of women, the attitudes, you know, around women's roles had changed over that time. Yeah. So that gets to the question of what is behind these generational differences. This is one of the, I think the deepest points that your, your book makes is the extent to which technological change is what drives the difference between one generation and the next. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because, because I think naively, people listening to this might say, well, sure, I know my grandparents' generation is different from my parents, which is different from mine. But the reason for that is because people just change the way they think, right? We have conversations and people make progress and people write books and make arguments and and television shows change their values. And we realize that people in the past had wrong values and there's just a rolling conversation, which is how change happens. A lot of people wouldn't think that actually technological change is upstream, which is to say really causing those values changes. So make that case a little bit. Why is technology really the root cause behind these changes? Because technology changes how we live. And when we change how we live, then the values shift with them. So one good example of that is cultural individualism. So more focus on the self and less on others. Technology makes individualism possible. It allows more people to live independently of each other because a lot of things around, say, labor-saving devices and all kinds of things around the house that once you have those, then it's not as necessary to have a whole household working together just to survive. Plus, these technological changes expose us to different worlds. So television was a great example of that. You know, the internet now as well, where we can have more instant communication. Um, We're not as reliant on understanding our values just based on the community physically around us because we have that greater capability to communicate and understand, you know, people from all around the world, really. And that tends to promote, you know, much more of that idea of that's central to individualism around acceptance of difference and diversity and so on. So this is all kind of rooted in the way that technology has changed. Yeah. So it's useful there to look at some individual examples, too. And I think a really compelling one is the difference in attitudes towards sex before marriage and out of wedlock births. So if you ask my grandparents, they would have very typical views for the silent generation, which is, you know, there's nothing more shameful than to um, ha- how to have a baby out of wedlock and, and so forth. By my father's generation, that was, it was 
let's say more accepted. And it was certainly more accepted to just be a single mother. And it was certainly more accepted to begin having sex before you were married, right? People may have done that who were born in the 30s and 40s, but they didn't talk about it. And they certainly didn't talk about it in public. Now you can have a show like How I Met Your Father or whatever, where like the whole premise of the show is like how many, like the different guys that you're dating before you get married. And no one thinks it's weird. Um, No one would shame such a person now, right? So if you ask, how did that change happen? Well, one story would be people just got more enlightened because people got more enlightened. But what you're arguing is more nuanced, which is technological changes actually gave women more control over their fertility. Like birth control, for example. Birth control, right. And and once women had that control, then ideas caught up to reality in some sense. So is that a story you would tell about the changing norms on that issue? That's certainly part of it. Yeah. You start with birth control technology and that starts to change attitudes, but it also goes hand in hand with the bigger cultural story of increasing individualism. Do what you want to do, as opposed to follow these social rules that we have in place. And that there are more things that are acceptable. There's not just one life path of you grow up, you get married, you have sex, you have babies. That No, there's you can mix that up. There's other ways to go. So that's in there too. And then the other thing that was striking to me in what you're saying is the idea around, you know, what what's enlightened well that's a cultural idea you know i mean i think the your grandparents generation to the silent generation would say no it's it's more enlightened to wait and more enlightened to make sure you're married before you have children right it's debatable which position is more enlightened so one of the most interesting trends in your book one which i was not at all aware of had never heard of uh, but makes sense is the trend in naming patterns Can you talk about how baby names have changed over the past hundred years and what that indicates about changing culture in general? So the statistics are that it used to be really striking proportion, especially boys with about one out of four boys in the fifties got one of the top 10 names. So it was just much more common for kids to have common names that James was a very popular name back then. And you you kind of do the math and you realize that pretty much, you know, any group of 25 kids, say in first grade in the 1950s, you'd probably have two kids named James, right? They'd be called Jimmy most of the time. So you'd have two Jimmys just because that there was such a common name and so many kids got common names. And it's now less than one out of 10. It's about 7%, I think, or less of boys who get one of the names in the top 10 of popularity for the year that they were born. So then the question is why? And again, it's that shift in like what's desirable that in the 50s, more collectivistic time, the idea that parents had was, well, I want my kid to fit in. So I'm going to give them a name that's more common. And now more the more individualistic idea is more popular. No, I want my kid to stand out. I don't want them to have a name that everybody else has. I want to, want to give them a name that's more unique. And that really shows that kind of shift from collectivism to individualism. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. I think to me that seems of a piece with a general trend that people's lives have become more fractured and people in general have less in common. So one way you could see this is in the classic case of TV channels, there used to be like 10 channels that everyone watched. Used to be three channels. Three channels, (laughs) three channels that everyone watched. Now, the way people consume media is that there is a virtual infinity of content. And I, on Instagram and TikTok, and to an extent on Netflix and, and HBO, I get 
an algorithmically tailored, not exactly unique, but highly specialized fire hose of content designed just for me. So that if I meet a stranger today and I ask what you're, you know, what you've been watching on Netflix, he's very likely to, to list 10 shows that I've never heard of. Right. And so in some way it becomes just harder to relate to the average stranger. And I think one question I had is like, what, what effect this might have on people dating, right? Because I imagine in the past when everyone was watching the same movies more so and consuming the same news networks more so, you could sort of strike up more easily a conversation on a first date with, with a person because odds are you've consumed some of the same content. Now it's like the whole whole point of the first date is to to know if if you watch the same shows I do because like if you do maybe we're a match in in some way. So how do you think about the general what I would call like the fracturing of American society? Yeah, I think that that's an interaction between the technology making that possible and also some individualism too, that everybody's watching on their own devices. It's just, it's not as common for couples or families, you know, to watch all the same content. And though we can watch the things that we want to watch and that's somewhat individualistic impulse. But I think, I think it has created gaps, you know, that it is harder for people to strike up those conversations. It's harder across generations as well because very few Gen Xers or boomers are on TikTok, for example, right? And there's plenty of Gen Z and the next generation down, who I call pollers, who are on that. Even then though, you know, it's for you. That's how the page is designed. So there's some memes and some popular videos that they might still be able to connect over. But, you know, it feels like the generation gaps are larger now than they've been in a long time. And I think that's one of the reasons why that the content that we're consuming, even the way that we consume it is different across generations. So let's talk about the the silent generation. That was very interesting to me. You know, my my grandparents are both squarely in the silent generation. And one of the most interesting facts in your book I learned is that the silent generation is by all accounts the happiest, happier than the greatest generation before them. Greatest generation would be the ones that served in World War II. Silent generation would be the ones that were sort of kids during World War II, too young to fight, but maybe just old enough to sort of remember the the uh, rationing and, and so forth. And that's just like my grandparents. And then boomers would be after 46, 1946. So turns out the silent generation is the happiest. What's up with that? What What is, I don't think anyone would guess that necessarily. Yeah, right. I mean, because you're a kid during the Great Depression or during World War II, you wouldn't necessarily think that. Um, but they didn't go to war at quite as high a rate as the greatest generation before them and the boomers after. So some silence went to, went to Korea, but it was a smaller number than in the generations around them. And, you know, obviously going to war, you get post-traumatic stress disorder, all these issues coming up. And then the life course of, of the silence is several things they experienced, which I think were really protective to their mental health. So a lot of them had a lot of kids that isn't always great while it's happening, but in the long term, it can give people a lot of meaning, a lot of social connection. Um, they married young. That sometimes means they experienced divorce too, but they would often remarry. So that social connection piece was there. And then just their their life course, if you think about when they were growing up, it really was that just very long post-war period of economic expansion and of the U.S. being just kind of undisputed in terms of being a world leader that just a very positive time 
overall as they were growing into adulthood. And and even during COVID, apparently they were made, they, they sort of suffered less during COVID, at least on their own account than other mentally. generations mentally. Even though they even suffered though they the were, most physically. Right. In some yeah. sense, they were the most likely to, to die of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, and be hospitalized because they are the senior citizens of, of the pandemic. Yet, you know, on surveys, they were the least likely to say that they felt anxiety or depression, which is so really striking. So there's a kind of mental toughness in that generation combined with having grown up during kind of maybe a golden age of American prosperity and hegemony or something. Yeah, and they'd argue that, of course... You know, we can't romanticize it too much because that that period had some clear advantages, but it certainly wasn't paradise when you think about um, that period from the perspective of women or people of color. So we do have to keep in mind that, you know, it's tempting to look back at the 50s and think everything was rosy, even though not really. Well, it never is. And, it, and it's all relative. So individualism is a major theme you've already mentioned pretty much each generation has become more individualistic than the last. And the other major trend that you've shown in your book is a slower life trajectory. Each generation has taken a slower life trajectory than the last. What do you mean by that and what has caused that? So the slow life strategy, also at base rooted in technology, primarily medical technology, which helps people live longer. So because the lifespan is longer, the whole developmental trajectory has slowed down at every stage. So children are less independent. Teens are less likely to get their driver's license or to go out on dates or to drink alcohol compared to previous generations. Young adults take longer to get married, to have children to settle into careers. Middle-aged and older people feel and look younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. You know, it's 50 is the new 40 and 60 is the new 50 and that idea. So all the generations have been impacted by this in one way or another. And I think it's led to a lot of generation gaps and misunderstandings. You know, I think there's a lot of silent generation grandparents who are saying, you know, why are my millennial and Gen Z kids not married yet? Or grandkids, say, grandkids when I was not your married age, yet. That's right. I when was I married, was your age, I had a job. That's right. You know, I, I walked to school uphill both ways, et cetera. Yeah. Or I was serving in war and you're, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You know, like you don't even have a job or something like that. And it's just because it's all slowed down and it's, it's because people live longer. It's also because education takes longer to finish because of technology being more complicated, more complicated um, economy and society. So it's much more common for people to get college degrees and graduate degrees. And that slows down the trajectory as well. So to me... And I think that is true. I think it's, uh, there's no doubt that that's true. What does that suggest about how norms should change? Because one of the most important norms in society is when someone becomes an adult. So obviously, you know, in ancient religions, if you think of the Jewish tradition, the bar and bat mitzvah is at 13 years old. And I think they really took seriously in those days that that was a ritual of adulthood. Now it's, it's, that's so... I think we're so far removed from that era of civilization that when we say when someone getting a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah is like you're a, you're a man or a woman now, we don't believe it when we say it. And the 13 age is just a tradition, but it's become emptied of what it may have meant at that time. And we now have the age of adulthood at 18 and that's when you can vote and that's when you're, you know, you can make all your own decisions and so forth. 
at some level, if people are less mature at 18 these days than an 18 year old would have been 50 years ago, if they've had fewer, you know, spent less time, frankly, with people, like they spent fewer hours of their life hanging out with people, managing social relationships, managing romantic relationships. Uh, they've had less sex than they would have had many decades ago. At some level, they just haven't had as many at-bats at life as they would have many decades ago. You know, does it make sense to push the age of adulthood back at some level? Maybe, although... If not literally, then like sort of as a norm? I mean, in some ways, perhaps. It's, it, it's tough because I try to stay away from words like mature to describe it because is it more or less mature to drink alcohol in high school? That might actually be considered a mature decision, right? Or to not have sex in high school. But it is, it's true. 18-year-olds are behaving more like what 15-year-olds used to behave I think like in terms of independent. Interesting. Yeah. So is it, so they're, they're doing less of it than they used to, and they're also starting later. Yes. So, but that's a good question. Does, does it make you less mature if you, so is this just like a, a, a suddenly kids have gotten more mature and have skipped to the point where they're, they know it's wise to no, drink less? I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. I don't think that's yeah. what it is either. Yeah. I think yeah. they're starting to make the mistakes later and maybe learning from those mistakes a bit later too. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a pretty accurate way to, to, to look at it. And there's some advantages to that. So it's not, that's not all bad. I mean, I think it's important, especially for these trends to, to, you know, not focus too much on the, on the good versus bad. Um, But yeah, they're making the mistakes later. They're, you know, just getting experience with decision-making later. And when you're young, that's what decision-making is sort of, sort of about is learning how to make mistakes and, and, and learn from them. And that is happening later. On the flip side, if a 70-year-old today is not what a 70-year-old was 40 years ago, then in many places where there's like a mandatory retirement age, there may be a rationale for moving that up. It's one reason that's happened. Some of it is, you know, just budget and politics and so on. But you, you can make that argument because people are staying healthy and active longer and because of better medical care. Okay, so let's talk about uh, baby boomers. The now really are just called boomers. And I know like boomer has become an insult actually. So it's at least among a certain crowd. I I have a friend who has small children. He has like a five-year-old kid and a nine-year-old kid. And I hang out with the family sometimes and I'm kind of like an older cousin to them. And they call me a boomer sometimes, which I think is hilarious. They see me as a boomer. I was born in 19, in like 96. I need to check your dates there. So it just, it has come to mean like older person who is out of touch or clueless about some aspect of what is going on right now. Right. But you know, the boomers are probably not arguably, I think, tell me if you agree, like in some way, the most important generation because of the sheer number of them and the, the weight that they have exerted by sheer size. So can you talk a little bit about what makes boomers different and what has been their lasting impact on American society? And and also what were the main points of difference between boomers and their parents, the silent generation? Yes. And the, and the greatest. So there are many of them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, boomers are just, they're a very large generation. So they have dominated the culture at every life stage. So when they were children in the fifties, it was very family oriented. Then as they grew older, late sixties, early seventies, and it's focused on things that adolescents and young adults are interested in. 
then in the 80s, we went back to family because that's when boomers were, were having their own children. So they've just, they've had that big impact at, at every stage. And I think, I, I think that the biggest contribution of boomers is in terms of individualism and equality. So you, so to go back to the silence for a moment, it's often assumed that boomers uh, were the leaders of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. That was actually the silence. Even, um, even Stonewall, even, you know, LGBT, that started with the silence and the greatest in some cases. So, but boomers were the ones who ended up living that because they came along just as those things were changing. So they lived that new reality. And I think they also changed hearts and minds. The silence changed the laws and the boomers changed the hearts and minds and everything else followed from there. So one point you made in the book is that boomers had worse mental health than the silent generation. And it seemed like this was a multifactorial thing. What, how could you explain why it was that boomers were less happy, are less happy as a class than silence? There's a, there's a lot of different factors. So some folks think television has something to do with it around um, what's called relative deprivation, that television allowed boomer children, adolescents and young adults to see everything that they couldn't have, um, to kind of get a window on that life, but then not be able to achieve it. Uh, income inequality had a big impact on, on boomers. Um, most of that trend toward more unhappiness has been borne by the boomers who did not have a college education. And I think that's not a coincidence is they ended up experiencing, you know, a, a lot of the downsides of the shift in the economy in the eighties away from manufacturing jobs towards service. And then the growth in income inequality, which really started, you know, in the eighties. And there's also some downsides to individualism. There's huge upsides, but too much of a focus on the self and not enough on social rules. You can get a lot of social disconnection. And I think boomers bore the brunt of that as well. Oh, and plus a lot of alcohol and drug use, which you can hard to say which what causes what, whether the say depression is causing the alcohol use or the alcohol use is causing the depression. But that's another really, really big difference between silence and boomers is in their alcohol and drug use much higher among boomers. So so it's not simply a stereotype that the seventies was the the decade of of drugs. It's not. I mean, you can document this in the data. There's like just this really stark difference. If you look at birth year, that it starts to, to, to really climb with people born in the forties. So early forties is silenced and later in the forties born in the forties is the boomers. And then it just up from there, a huge difference between those generations that grows over time in terms of, uh, especially marijuana use. That's where you see the big, the biggest difference, but you know, pretty much all drugs across the board. It's just marijuana is the most commonly used. Let's talk about the generation that gets the least amount of love, which is Gen X. And before reading your book, I sort of forgot that Gen X was a thing because obviously millennials, you know, Gen Z, I I know boomers. I know, I think of my grandparents for the silent generation. There's kind of no one that I honestly know that I think of like that's Gen X. And bit strange because I, I know several people in every other generation like closely and I can compare your research to my view of them and so forth. Why is Gen X the one that gets the least love? So I'm a Gen Xer myself. So I've thought about this plenty. So, you know, and I actually don't even think this is entirely a bad thing. A lot of my fellow Gen Xers like the idea that we can kind of fly under the radar. It's not all bad, you know, as the boomers and millennials are kind of fighting it out. You know, Gen X is a smaller generation just in terms of population, just birth rates at the time. So I think that's part of it. You know, I think part of it too is 
you know, just got the bigger generations on either side. And Gen X. So millennials are bigger generation than. Yeah. Than Gen X. Bigger in terms of time span or or birth? Time span is about the same. So it was that the birth rate was higher during those years. Um, It was kind of, people called it the echo boom. That's when the boomers were, were having a lot of their children. So that may have been part of it. But, you know, I think also Gen Xers kind of like being contrary. They like flying under the radar. They like, you know, maybe not participating in these fights. They just kind of don't care. And I think that's one reason they just don't speak up as much. They're not as politically involved. They weren't as politically involved as young adults um, as either boomers or millennials. So I think that's why they often get forgotten. Yeah. You note that there is a kind of cynicism, but also starting with Gen X, you say there was an increase in self-confidence. So, you know, I, I think many people are aware of these studies and survey questions that will ask people, you know, are you an above average driver? And by definition, the correct answer you should get in a population is 50% because that's what average means. But you always get answers like, oh, 70% of people think they're an above average average driver or whatever it is. And it's it's very funny because it's just a measure of people's self-delusion, essentially. But it turns out, and I didn't know this before reading your book, that self-delusion has changed generation to generation. Some generations have been more self-deluded with respect to particular skills than others. So can you talk about the trend in increasing what I would call delusional self-confidence? Yeah. So that above average measure is a fun one. And there's a a survey of um, entering college students that has asked um, the students, you know, if they're above average in certain characteristics. So things like leadership ability or drive to achieve or to where you see just, you know, yeah, a big, a big change that when you're in, it was the boomers who were being surveyed, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s, that they were a little bit more modest. It was coming in more at that 50% mark. And then it grew from there, especially starting, starting in the late, late boomers and then Gen X and then millennials were just steadily grew over that time of saying, yeah, I'm above average. I'm above average in my drive to achieve. I'm above average in my leadership ability and my academic ability and so on. Um, And then the question is why? So I think individualism has a lot to do with it. If you're going to focus on the self and place a lot of emphasis on the self, you better feel good about yourself. And then especially once you get to millennials, you start to see evidence of something else, which is great inflation. So why do more young people think that they're above average in their academic ability? Because more of them got A's. Not necessarily because they were smarter, standardized test scores stayed about the same, but great inflation. And time spent on homework went down. Time spent on homework actually went down, contrary to popular belief. People spent less time on homework, but more of them got A's. I mean, is there anything to the to the meme that the younger generations got participation trophies and that is why we're so delusionally self-confident? Yes, although I think that's that fell out of favor. So I think that impacted millennials a lot more. The participation trophy era was the late 80s through the 90s. And then I think a lot of parents and coaches woke up to the idea that this is maybe not the way to do things, that life doesn't give you a prize just showing up. It's the way some also, people put it. Something tells me that the kids knew the participation trophies meant nothing. I think they I did. think kids just mentally adjust. I think kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. And they know they didn't win. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that, that was going on. But I think there was also stuff where maybe they didn't know. I think more people getting A's as an example, or, you know, a lot of parents and, you know, just people who gave advice to 
to kids giving that, you know, saying things, you could be anything you want to be and you're special and so on. And I think those were taken to heart a little bit more. Um, but that, I think that has faded and there's some evidence it's faded. So one example of like, you know, delusional self-confidence in psychology, one word for that is narcissism. And that peaked among um, young adults or college students in 2008 and actually went down after that. Interesting. So not to start fights uh, in my audience, does that, would that make millennials the most narcissistic generation? By, I mean, by that measure, by yes, that it measure. would. But I remember seeing some of the other charts in your book seem to put Gen Z on a par with millennials on, on many of those. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed picture. So narcissism went down, self-esteem went down for Gen Z. Um, some of the stuff about thinking you're above average has backed off but not as much. It's kind of tapered off just a little bit as compared to self-esteem, which went significantly down. So it depends. But, you know, overall, I, I would say that for, for Gen Z, the issue, the main primary thing to worry about is not narcissism. It's depression. And I'm sure we'll get to that. Well, let's get to it right now, because this was and is, I think, my most pressing concern about and the, the, really the value of your research is that the history is very interesting, but what's going on right now with Gen Z is that we've all been enrolled in an experiment where, you know, I, I was 12 years old, I think when I got a phone and it was a flip phone still at that time. I was on Facebook when I was 13, when it was still pretty innocent. And I was also a boy, uh, which makes a pretty big difference in that you know, my having an Instagram maybe when I was a freshman was not such a big deal because boys are not in general judged and made to feel as neurotic about their their bodies and so forth. But what you have been at the forefront of publicizing is that there is a huge problem with the combination of phones and social media uh, that has had a measurable effect and a deleterious effect on the mental health of Gen Z and particular Gen Z girls. So can you, can you make this case to a skeptic for me? There's someone out there that just hasn't either hasn't heard of this or, um, has read an article about how it's all, uh, it's all Luddite anti-tech kind of moral panic, right? What is the hard evidence that Gen Z is worse off from a mental health perspective? And what's the hard evidence that that is due to phones and social media? So for the first question, in terms of the mental health trends, this is pretty undisputed that starting around 2012 or so, pretty much every indicator of mental health among teens started to get worse. So more and more teens started to say they felt lonely and left out. More started to say they felt like they couldn't do anything right or that they weren't enjoying life. And those last two are classic symptoms of depression. Clinical level depression among 12 to 17 year olds doubled between 2011 and 2019. So long before the pandemic. Emergency room admissions for self-harm quadrupled for 10 to 14 year old girls between 2009 and 2021. So they tripled even before the pandemic and then continued to increase. The suicide rate in those age groups has also doubled to quadrupled. So in other words, these are in behaviors that can be objectively measured, not just symptoms. So we can't explain it away by saying, oh, they're just more willing to say that they have these issues. Um, we can't explain it away by saying it's been overdiagnosed. None of the evidence that I've just presented is from diagnoses. It's from cross-sectional surveys that get everybody, whether they have see sought treatment or not. 
So it's very, very clear that we have a mental health crisis right now among adolescents um, and also young adults. So then the question is why? So 2012 happens to be the first year the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's also around the time that social media use moved from relatively optional to virtually mandatory among teens. Because so, it used to be about half of teens would use social media every day. And by 2012, especially 2015, then it starts to cross over in 75%, 80%, where if you're not using it, you're left out. The time that teens spend on social media has also you know, steadily gone up. And at that, around that same time, teens also started sleeping less. They also started spending less time with their friends face-to-face. So you get that combination of those three things, this fundamental shift in how teens spent their time outside of school. They started spending more time online, less time sleeping, less time with friends face-to-face. That is a terrible formula for mental health. So, and those things, that was their everyday lives. That wasn't something they read about. It wasn't something that happened to their parents. And this is why I think these changes in technology are the most likely explanation for the mental health crisis is this is what matters to teens how they're spending time outside of school, how they're communicating with their friends. Sleep has an enormous impact on mental health as well. So all of these things have a huge impact. And what's interesting is, you know, I first you know, was started making this argument very publicly when iGen came out in 2017. So it's been almost six years. And I've heard a lot of alternative explanations, which are absolutely worth considering. None of them fit the data as well as these changes in technology. Uh, So I think I was positively predisposed towards your thesis because I was, um, I was, uh, 16 years old in 2012, which is, you know, as close to a a good date for the year this trend began. Right. I was 16 years old at that time. And I had friends that were experiencing mental health issues and a lot of them Virtually all of them were also the friends I had that spent the most time online. And again, it is difficult to tease out causation there because- We can talk about that. Yeah. Like it, my intuitive sense of what is going on is they were kids that were already struggling in some ways. And then as a result, were more attracted to this virtual world. And then the virtual world ended up magnifying and in a toxic way kind of- teaching them, linking them up with other people that were also miserable and like magnifying their misery together in really toxic ways. And I had friends who, you know, learned how to self-harm from being on Tumblr. I know that's the really unfortunate thing, isn't it? Yeah. And it was this, it was this extremely seductive, like world online world that only we teenagers knew about it. Our parents didn't really know about it. And it was very dark and it was very twisted and it didn't, necessarily feel like it was a wrong thing to do, but I think it brought people deeper into some of the more typical adolescent troubles and psychological patterns they may have already been experiencing. So that's something I just like observed. And then when I, when I, so when I read your book, it made perfect sense to me that that would have magnified self-harm behaviors and in the limit suicidal behaviors because I had seen it, you know, and I've, you know, I know some people have been very skeptical of this thesis, but it, it, there, it seems to me there's nothing else that fits the bill of something that changed in 2012. Kept going in the same direction. And kept going in the same direction. That's right. There's just nothing else. It, it's, to me, it seems clear as day that this is, 
this is the cause. On the other hand, I am a scientifically minded person, so I'm always open to to other evidence. But presumably, if, if this is the cause, we'd expect to see it in other countries too. That's a telltale sign that it has nothing to do with, I don't know. School shootings, political ups and downs, any of these other things. And that's it. We do see it in other countries very consistently. Yeah. So for adolescent loneliness, it's probably where we have the most data from the most countries, 36 countries around the world, adolescent loneliness increased around 2012, just same pattern as in the U.S. Uh, we have good data on self-harm and depression um, from other English-speaking countries, from Scandinavian countries, also very, very consistent, shows the same, very little change or even improvements, say between 2000 in 2012, and then it goes up just like in the U.S. Yeah. So that data is the most compelling to me. Now there's these other studies which try to get, you know, randomly get a group of people to stop being on their phone for a few weeks. And maybe you can talk about that, but my, my intuition would would be, I'm, I wonder how much that really captures what's wrong because, okay, you know, in, in, in the year we're talking the year 2023, I can get rid of my phone. And I've, I've actually had some instances where I lost my phone and like, didn't get it back for a week or two. I've lived phoneless for probably almost a month in the past two years. And I don't think it's the same as living phoneless in 2008 because everyone else has phones. Exactly. That's right. So I'm not actually sure that those experiments, and I know the evidence may be mixed on some of them. I don't know if they would actually capture in a weird way the, the truth here. That's why, to me, it's remarkable that those experiments do show effects. Usually they ask people to give up social media rather than the phone entirely, but they do. You know, that's, that's gener- generally speaking, that's what those experiments show is, especially if they last three weeks or longer, people who either give up or cut back on social media, then at the end of that three week or month long period are happier and less depressed and people can continue their normal use. But, you know, there's a couple of things in that design that it doesn't capture. It doesn't capture the fact that all your friends are still on social media. And sometimes they're on it while they're hanging out with you. Right. Exactly. And there's a FOMO right. factor. Right. That and just it interrupts the have... face-to-face conversations. Yeah. yeah. So there's that element. Um, then there's also, I don't know if this is too in the weeds, but it's something I've thought about a lot. By definition, when you do that, you're taking people who have a normal level or an average level of social media use, and then they cut back to low. That's not where the biggest problems are. The biggest problems are the people who have excessive use or heavy use. That's where you really get the bad outcomes is the, the, especially a lot of teen girls in this category who are using social media five hours, seven hours, even more a day. That's, that's when you have by far the highest levels of depression. So where does TikTok fit into this? Because, you know, TikTok, I think is more addictive than anything to come before it. At least that seems to be true. On the other hand, a lot of it does seem like innocent, hilarious, creative, amazing content. And that's why it's become more addictive in combination with how good the algorithm is at giving you the stuff that you in particular, how quickly it learns you. Um, Do you feel TikTok has any kind of special role to play in the mental health crisis? Do you think it's unfairly scapegoated and Instagram is more to blame? Do you make a distinction between these various apps? 
So TikTok is fairly new on the scene. It didn't really become popular in the U.S. until about 2020. So, you know, and that for that reason, we can't blame it for the stuff that happened before. And it interacted with the pandemic. So it's kind of hard to separate it out when you look over time. But that algorithm is so sticky. And I think it's one of the main reasons why, you know, teens are spending even more time on, on social media. Plus, there's a lot of harmful content that people end up down wormholes. You know, they'll, and this happens on Instagram too, they'll start looking for stuff on healthy diets and then end up with pro-anorexia material, or they'll be depressed and they'll start looking at stuff on that. And they can end up with some really, really dark and harmful content on TikTok. And the TikTok challenges, I think are another thing we have to acknowledge are, you know, obviously not a good trend. You know, some kids have died from doing those challenges. And then even those that, you know, maybe don't involve physical harm have, you know, had some, you know, uh, financial repercussions. There was one a few years ago, uh, where it challenged kids to destroy school property. And school districts around the country lost millions of dollars from that. So what about Instagram? You know, Instagram, it seems to me, when I go on Instagram, all my friends are also on Instagram, which in a way makes Instagram more attractive to me than TikTok. TikTok is like, it's more like YouTube in the sense that I'm just looking at a bunch of great creators that I like. I don't know any of them personally. They're not looking at me it doesn't feel like socializing. It feels like consuming content. Whereas when I go on Instagram, I'm half consuming content and I'm half checking out all the stories of people in my life who I know. Those people might be doing better than me and I can feel jealous or envious, or I might be doing better than them and I can feel high and mighty. And the social comparison is a factor on Instagram, which it is not a factor uh, on TikTok. And and if you're a teen girl, to go on Instagram might be to see all the bodies of, of other girls in your grade and at your school, and maybe some of them are more developed than you or more beautiful than you. And, and so it's that kind of comparison too. On its face, that would seem to be maybe more toxic than a TikTok or a YouTube. Yeah, although there's certainly social comparison that happens on TikTok too. There's a lot of of beauty videos and even the dance videos. There's, you know, there's a, a lot of teen girls who see that and I couldn't ever dance like that or I couldn't ever look like that in terms of body type. And that does go on on Instagram too. There, there's a couple of really interesting studies of body image on Instagram and some of them show exactly what you're describing that seeing, say, high school classmates, you know, who have, quote, better bodies than you do is one of those those spirals. I mean, that's matter Facebook's own research showed that that was one of their conclusions from a bunch of studies that they did on Instagram and how it was having an effect on teen girls. They, they described it as a grief spiral. It starts with social comparison and then it just gets worse from there. Okay. So what is the solution here? What are the, I mean, people are talking about banning TikTok. People are talking about putting um, really cracking down on verifying your age and having strict age limits that are actually enforced as opposed to, you know, totally a quote unquote honor system, which means it basically doesn't exist. Um, what, what do you think is the wise path forward from a policy perspective? Or do we just say, look, it's a capitalist society, so there are going to be some harm. There's going to be some externalities, but what are you, what are we going to do? Ban an app? Cause there are people with that perspective as well. Well, we don't do that for alcohol. We don't say, Hey, it's, it's fine. Kids can go drink alcohol. And we don't say, Oh, and those kids can also go drive a car. We put age gates on lots of things. There's lots and lots of precedent for that. And the same thing with lots of other consumer products. We, there's a whole system of protection around consumer products. 
We don't let things go onto the, onto the market, or at least if we do, then they're recalled if they are dangerous, particularly if they're dangerous to children. And like, we have more and more evidence that that's the case for social media. So I think that that's clearly the place to start with policy. So I think we should raise the minimum age for social media to 16 and actually enforce it. And then the next question is, well, how are you going to do that? There's a bunch of companies that do identity and age verification, third parties, usually not the social media companies themselves. There's so many of those companies that do that age and identity verification that they have their own trade industry group. So it can be done. It can be done. It can be done in various ways. And considering it's a third party, it doesn't have to compromise privacy. So it can be done. So would that, I mean, I'm trying to picture that, that world. I wonder if that would leave an opening for someone to try to create similar websites for, you know, just to try to somehow get around it, right? Like I'm going to create a similar TikTok and just try to get the network effect quickly. And does it become a -a whack-a-mole with, with these products or or what do you think? It would have to have teeth, you know, it would have to be good definition for what falls under this and be enforced. But when I think about that world, what I think about is middle schools without social media. And nobody would have social media. So it wouldn't be mom, I'm the only one who no doesn't FOMO. have social media. No FOMO, none of that. It would it would just be a non-issue. Nobody could have it. I think a lot of parents come into their preteen and teen kids thinking that I'm I'm not gonna let you get a phone, I'm not gonna let you whatever. And then buckle to the Everybody else nagging. has one. Yes. I mean, and I think a lot of people, they think they can put it, put up with it more than they actually can. And eventually they buckle. And that's really the reason why so many parents who know, know that this stuff is potentially harmful end up, end up doing it. And safety. That's why people, that's often why parents get kids phone is phones is for safety. But then if that phone can download social media, then you open the Pandora's box. Well, it's amazing how most parents are old enough to remember a world without cell phones. And, you know, people got around. I like, know, exactly. It, but it's, it's a funny, pain like, in the butt sometimes, though. Yeah. But but once you get the phone, it's like somehow your memory gets wiped and you think it's impossible to live life without a cell phone, right? One, one interesting thing is that there has been so much panic around video games. And I remember when I was, I think when I was quite young, you know, like, maybe 10 and below, the real worry everyone had was that my son is spending too many hours playing video games. And the kinds of video games he's playing are these first person shooter games that I don't understand the appeal of. And I'm afraid that he's going to become a psychopath. I'm I'm afraid it's desensitizing him to like real world violence and movies are too violent. And what's interesting is the evidence for that was, and correct me if I'm wrong, very weak. No, it's not weak at all. It's not weak. No. That that video games encourage violence. Yeah. Really? Yeah. The evidence is strong for that. Well, okay. It's it's very strong, both correlational and experimental, that it can cause aggression. You can't test violence in the lab. You can have somebody blast noise against someone or say that they have to eat hot sauce, which is going to be uncomfortable, but you can't have someone actually shoot somebody in the lab, thank God. So it's hard to test it all the way to violence, but we know that there's plenty of evidence showing that it causes aggression. But so the age of video games ex- exploding in popularity has coincided with a decline in youth violence, right? That's true. 
Right. So, so there at the group level, you're not getting that, that relationship that you get it at, it is at the individual level, both correlational and experimental, where you do get the link between playing the violent video games and aggression. But at that level of the group, there's one theory that maybe the kids who would have been committing the violent crimes are at home playing the video games. Oh, interesting. Well, in any event, I think what occurs to me is with video games, you've seen declining violence at the same time as these games have become more popular. And it turned out to be social media, which at the same time it exploded, you saw a rise in suicide. In other words, it it turned out to be social media rather than video games, violent video games even, that ended up perhaps doing more concrete harm to the generation, uh, to the younger generation. And I think no one would have predicted that. It's actually very counterintuitive. It, it may, may seem obvious in retrospect, but I think you, you would have had to be really, really intelligent and perceptive to have predicted that in like 2008. Yeah, I th- that no, Call I, of and Duty would do you. less harm than Instagram. Well, right. Well, in, in 2008, it was, it was MySpace. You know, and Instagram wasn't around and there wasn't, you know, the like button. So it was it was different. Social media at that time was more about connection. And so there was some attention seeking in that element, um, which wasn't always the best. But it wasn't as common. It wasn't as required. Um, and it just it didn't have the same the same feel to it that it does now. So let's talk about um, one of the one of the more interesting and strange trends uh, over the past 10 years. And, and this has been sort of talked about lately quite a bit in the past few months, which is that there's a political dimension to the mental health crisis. It's not experienced equally by liberals and conservatives. So it's, it's concentrated in, uh, in Gen Z. And uh, I think, correct me, to, to a lesser extent, but still in millennials. So it's for, for millennials as young adults or, or teens and young adults, they were actually happier than the Gen Xers before them. But 26 to 34 year olds, depression started to increase for that group as well. Yeah, so, so the that's, younger two thirds or so right. of millennials has started, started to show increases in depression too. But And that would coincide with the people that are most on social media in that cohort, presumably. You could make that argument, yeah. So there's been a political dimension to it where, you know, let's say in people under 30, certainly liberals are more likely to have experienced that rise in depression than conservatives. So this is, I mean, this is, um, this is very interesting trend. Is it that people who have liberal politics or progressive politics are more likely to spend time online at all and therefore more likely to just get those toxic online effects? Or is it something about progressive ideas and filters on the world themselves that lend it to a negativity? Is there something protective about conservative politics? Or is it just that they spend less time online? Well, I can speak the most to that with the data from teens, because that's where we have the best data over time. And if you look at the increases, they're biggest among liberal girls, so they're pretty big for liberal boys as well, say 17, 18-year-olds. They ha- they're there for conservatives. There are increases in depressive symptoms um, among conservatives uh, when they're 17 or 18. They're just not as big as increases for liberals. So that does beg the question of, you know, why, why is that, that the case? Well, liberals spend, liberal teens spend more time on social media than conservative teens do. And they spend less time 
with their friends than conservative teens do. So that's the picture we've seen over the last, you know, 10, 15 years that has not been great for mental health. And what's interesting is liberal teens used to spend more time with their friends face to face. Than conservative than teens. Than conservative teens. When and was that? The lines crossed. So uh, if you trace it back, um, say, to the 1970s, 1980s. It used to be the liberal teens who were going out with their friends more. And then so around that would 2012. Be like Gen Xers. Yeah, maybe. so Gen Xers yeah. and first part of millennials, that was the case. And then, then they traded places. And that happened again around 2012 or so when I think for, for liberals, then they moved more to spending that time, that communication time online, particularly on social media, and less time with their friends face to face. So at least for teens, a good amount of that political difference might actually be, again, because of that time on social media and less time with friends in person. So that pushes the question back to why do liberal teens spend more time online than conservative teens? Yeah. And one theory is, you know, liberal teens are more likely to have liberal parents. And kind of the one definition of being liberal or progressive is being more open to change. So more liberal parents might have just been more likely to say, oh, you know, these new things, that's cool. Sure, go and do that. And then the teens are just choosing to spend more time on social media and less with their friends in person, while conservative parents might have been like, wait, what's this new stuff? I don't know about that. And might have put stricter rules around that. And it seems they were not wrong to do that in the, in that case, right? If that's the case. I mean, I think that, you know, this, the case and the data on this is, is uh, meaning that, you know, any link between, um, you know, parenting styles and political uh, affiliation, we don't know as much about that as some of the other stuff we've been discussing, but it certainly looks that way that it was maybe a good thing to ask some questions about these new technologies. And so that's interesting that it, it, it switched like that. I mean, that's, this is a huge, I mean, it's not a small disparity between liberal and conservative teens. It's like a pretty hefty disparity. Are there alternative theories that have anything to do with, uh, you know, intrinsic elements of the worldviews themselves? I mean, that would, I mean, on its face, it would seem to be refuted by the fact that it used to be the other way, right? So like if conservatism as a philosophy made you happier, then that would show up in data from the past 60 or 70 years, right? It does though. I mean, if you look at the, yeah, if you look at the trends for teens, so because there, there's always been that difference by political affiliation in terms of depression, say. Liberals that have always, liberals been, have always been higher. It's just now they're much higher. You know, that gap has really grown. But so you could certainly make that argument. You know, there's, there's something else potentially going on that would explain that overall difference. And what that is, you know, I think is, is up for debate. It's a really interesting question to ask what that is. For, for adults, you can easily make the case that, well, you know, conservatives are more likely to be married. They're more likely to have kids. You know, they're more likely to have a church community or a religious community. So there's, there's other things going on for adults. Some of that may happen with, for, for teens as well. I tried to see if it was religion. It didn't look like it was religion from when I tried to parse that out of the data. So then the, the, that's the question of, yeah, maybe is it something in, in the philosophy? Is it something in the content of what people are doing online? And it's worth considering. And, you know, people have made that argument. Maybe some of the uh, liberal content online has been more about declaring things to be a ca- to catastrophe, for example, and that might push people toward depression. So let's see. I think some of the other Gen Z trends here may be worth mentioning, such as a massive spike in the number of people that identify as LGBTQ. So this is interesting to me because in some way it seems at odds or in tension with another Gen Z trend, which is 
having less sex, starting to have sex later, having less sexual experience in general. It seems like there is a generation that has less sexual experience than any generation prior, held age held constant, but is more likely to declare a non-standard and confident sexual identity, which is interesting to me and not necessarily what I expected. If you were to tell me that, you know, kids growing up in the 70s and the free love 70s were far more likely to be gay or to be queer or, or something like that, that might make more sense because, you know, they're having more experiences, right? They're actually experimenting. And so the results of their experimentation might be some discoveries about who they are that are um, not traditional and maybe not to their parents' liking and maybe whatever. Now we have an experiment, uh, a generation that is doing less of that real actual experimenting, but uh, is much more likely than any generation prior to say, you know, this is what I am sexually. This is what I am. And to really make bold statements in terms of their sexual and gender identities. How do you make sense of that tension? Or do you not see it as a tension? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it probably has to do with greater acceptance that in the seventies, not very many people were out as gay or lesbian or bisexual. Times people didn't even know what bisexual was in the seventies. Now same sex marriage is legal and just across the board, just much, much more acceptance of those identities. So that probably has something to do with those trends. Yeah. Would that though, would that show up in all generations becoming more uh, like people coming out of the closet in all generations posts like 2015, let's say, but we've seen really a, like a, a targeted uh, surge in Gen Z in particular, whereas the whole culture has become more progressive. So it would, wouldn't it suggest something else is going on? I mean, maybe, because yeah, you could say if it's a greater acceptance, then why wouldn't it be across all generations? You know, it, it could also be though, that for older people, it's more that, you know, they'd have to blow up more of their lives to say, okay, I'm going to come out now compared to someone who's younger, who still has more of that freedom to explore their identity. Okay. So I know you, you don't, you're very balanced in that you don't want to say that individualism or a slower, slower life trajectory is good or bad because they both clearly have both good and bad elements. But at the same time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't commit myself a priori to saying the good must equal the bad, right? That that seems as arbitrary as assuming it's all good or it's all bad, right? So gun to your head. <laughs> Do you think the trend towards individual individualism has has been more good or more bad for for people and and happiness and the culture? And if you don't want to answer it on no, that, I can, then I, I can. Maybe I can. maybe talk about yeah, yeah what's on both sides of the ledger. I think some of it is that you have to ask from whose perspective and, you know, in, in, although I'm not, I'm, I'm not someone who thinks identity is everything. I would never make that argument when I think to ha- about how you view individualism. I think that does have something to do with it because if we didn't have more individualism now, I probably as a woman with children would probably not be a professor and a writer. I mean, my life would be completely different. My opportunities would have been much more restricted. So for that reason alone, I think I have to lean towards saying individualism is more good than more bad. So my last question will be on the other major theme, slower life trajectory. Does this trend, which is 
clear? Is it, would you say it's more good or, or more bad? That one I have a much harder time choosing because I really think that neither one it's really neither one that there's, there's clear trade-offs that, I mean, just take teens, for example, you know, that they're waiting longer to drink alcohol and have sex has some pretty clear advantages to it. Yet, if they're going off to college or into the workplace and they haven't had, they don't have a driver's license, they haven't gotten out of the house all that much, that's a clear downside. So some sort of balance there, you know, if possible is nice, but definitely as both, you know, a parent and a researcher, I can see some clear downsides to our current system where high school students just don't develop independence. And I'm a college faculty member. I can see how the students who have had those experiences of of being able to run their own life and make their own decisions do better in college. And also deal with conflict. Absolutely. Right. And deal with difficult emotions with other people without shattering. And that, that kind of resilience cannot be taught in a classroom. It has to be lived and won through hard experience in some way. And if the experiences just aren't there, you see some of the problems that I think I've seen at least on college campuses and that people have talked about in terms of hiring Gen Z in the workplace, right? It's not that we're worse, it's that we are doing everything later than others have done it from a very young age. And the consequences of that are predictable. And also just that it's partially slow life strategy. It's also some of the things that go along with the slow life strategy, like more uh, focus on safety, which Gen Z hasn't rejected and rebelled against. They've embraced it. And there's a lot of good things to that. That's another thing with a lot of trade-offs that it is good that teens and young adults are more physically safe than they used to be. But where you get some of the downsides is, oh, but I want to, I don't want to be upset and I can't talk to you because we might disagree. That's a little too safe. And we have, and this is something I've remarked on a lot of episodes. When I was young, my parents had different politics and that wasn't seen as all that weird. Like if you had a a mom that was a Democrat and a dad that was a Republican, no one would really ask, well, how do you guys stay together? Right. And if in the year like 1990 or 2000, now people actually screen people for their politics in their Tinder profile or their hinge profile. They will say, they will say, don't swipe right on me if you don't have this particular politics. So that's a pretty big norm shift. And Combine that with social media echo chambers and all this, and it becomes, you know, like some one reason some people like my podcast is because I will have people on and like talk to whomever from any side of the political spectrum. And that's viewed as somewhat radical, (laughs) right? It's viewed as a little bit controversial. Whereas in the past, it would be like, big whoop, you talk to Democrats and Republicans, here's your participation trophy, you know? Um, But yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a big shift as well. So Let's see. Is there any, is there anything we didn't cover? We didn't spend a lot of time on millennials. That's true. We didn't spend a lot of time on millennials. So what is, uh, what is unique about millennials is, or, or are they just in the same trend towards individualism? Are they just the middle point between Gen X and, and Gen Z or is there something unique about millennials? I mean, I think millennials um, in many ways are peak individualism and also a lot more political participation than the Gen Xers before them. Uh, And in terms of running for political office, they've done very well. So I think if you're going to keep an eye on one generation politically, it's going to be millennials. And then, of course, Gen Z coming up because that's where the political breaking point is between the generations. It's between Gen X and millennials, also based on political affiliation. Because Gen Xers growing up in the age of Reagan, more conservative and Republican. Millennials growing up in the age of Obama, more 
Democrat, more liberal. And so that that's where that breaking point is in politics. I think we'll see more and more conflict around that breaking point. We've already seen it in terms of um, many things around you know, free speech issues, for example. It's very often the Gen X or boomer boss who says, no, we're not going to put out the political statement, or we are going to publish this view that we disagree with. And millennial and Gen Z and the other side saying, no, we can't do that. And I think that essential conflict uh, is already present and will keep going. So I think you've put your finger on why my five, my, my friend's five-year-old son called me a boomer. It's because I side with the boomers on, on free that, speech. On yeah. that. Yeah. And of course, you know, I don't want to paint too broad a brush. You know, everything we've been talking about is average differences. There's plenty of variation across the generation. And, you know, it could also change. Maybe there'll be more in Gen Z who recognize the downsides of that idea of emotional safety and the idea of not talking, you know, across the political spectrum. Okay. Actually, my last question now, why do you call the generation born after 2013 polars? And what do you know about them? So I call them polars after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. So two things that I think will really shape them in the years going forward. A lot of people call them alphas, but that's the idea of, oh, we've run out of letters in the regular alphabet, so let's now start over. It's a Greek alphabet. And I just think it's boring. The letters are just not very creative or very descriptive. And we don't know a ton about polars yet. That's by far the shortest chapter in the book because we only have a little bit of data. But, you know, these were the kids who had tablets when they were toddlers and they're not getting enough exercise and more of them are overweight. So... I think that's something that we want to try to solve by the time they get to be teenagers of maybe we can put some more restrictions on social media and try to turn some of these trends around. All right, Gene Twenge, this has been very good. The book is called Generations and uh, it's there's a lot in there that we didn't get to cover and I highly recommend people read it because not only is it interesting about generational differences, it's just a very good way to study the past hundred years of American culture, actually, because that's ultimately what generational change is about. It's a very kind of, it's a very useful way of studying cultural change in a way. So I think this is one of the best books I've, I've read on how American culture has changed and certainly the most data rich book on how American culture has changed in the past century. So congratulations on the book. And, uh, has been a great interview. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.